You're listening to audio from Redeemer Anglican Church in the urban heart of Richmond, Virginia. We are a parish committed to gospel formation for missional presence through seven essential practices. Telling the biblical story, embracing a new identity in Jesus, finding belonging in the church community, cultivating virtue through redemptive habits, understanding our context in this current cultural moment, laboring in renewed vocations for the common good, and reordering our imaginations through beauty in the arts. To learn more about our church, visit RedeemerRVA.org. You may be seated for the reading of God's word. And our first reading comes from Psalm 24, verses 3 through 6. You can find that on page 458 of your pew Bible. And as we love to say each week, if you do not have a Bible of your own, please do take one home after the service as our gift. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully, he will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. The word of the Lord. Please stand for the reading of the gospel. Gospel reading this morning is Matthew 5, verse 8. You can find it on page 810 of your Bible. This is the holy gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to St. Matthew. Glory to you, Lord Christ. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. The gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. Amen. Let's be seated. Once more, good morning, church. Good morning to you all. It's good to see you. If you uh, are new, welcome to Redeemer. I want to welcome you. If we haven't had a chance to meet yet, my name is Dan, and it really is a, a pleasure to serve here as a pastor. I'm very grateful to be on staff here. Uh, by way of orientation, if you haven't been with us for a while, we are in the midst of a sermon series on the Beatitudes of Jesus and the Gospel of Matthew. And we're calling this series Paradox Manifesto, which is not an attempt to be edgy, but is rather an attempt to be accurate. Uh, Paradox Manifesto, it's a fairly accurate two-word summary of what the Beatitudes are. They, these sayings of Jesus do not follow the logic of the kingdom of this world. They're only true in the kingdom of God. And so we do not experience them to be true most of the time, Right. And these words, these Beatitudes actually serve as something of a public declaration. You might even say a public confrontation to the values of our world and to our age. And just to kind of catch us up, thus far we've talked about the paradoxes of poverty and grief and gentleness and appetite and last week mercy. Today we're going to talk about the paradox of purity, the paradox of purity. As we begin, let me say a prayer. Heavenly Father, I pray that right now the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be acceptable and pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. 
So my favorite sci-fi author is a man named Orson Scott Card, and he has written a series of books that begin with a book called Ender's Game, which is a sci-fi classic. If you uh, are not, if you don't like nerding out into sci-fi literature like I do, then that would be a good entry point for you, a nice, easy on-ramp. Uh, if you're just looking for a good book to read in general, I would recommend that. It's a book that's uh, not only fun to read, but also good for you. Good for you. That's Ender's Game. That has nothing to do with a sermon. That's just free advice in the beginning, okay? Um, but later in the series, he's actually he's written a book uh, called Xenocide. And in that book, there's this race of people that has been like specifically genetically engineered to feel this like intense form of OCD, obsessive compulsive disorder, in which they feel unclean, dirty, and impure. And they go about creating all of these elaborate rituals to make themselves feel clean and pure again. Like the theme of one of these books is like, how does one become clean? How does one become pure? And you watch these characters like do things like wash their hands compulsively over and over and over and over again, trying to be clean. It's like this intense form of mysophobia, which is actually the technical term for what we more colloquially call germophobia, right? It's this pathological fear of germs, the sense that like every time you touch a doorknob, you like your hand feels tingly afterwards because you, you think you can feel the germs. You can't. You're crazy, but you think you can. And so you go and you like wash your hands every time you shake hands with somebody, right? So the passing of the peace stresses you out in church, right? Like, so you're gonna get a chance to apply this sermon later in like 15 minutes, all right? So, but this, this mysophobia is actually nothing new. This desire to be clean, both on the outside and on the inside, is something that every human being has this sense for. You, you don't have to teach kids this. They actually just come with this hardwired. Anthropologists of every kind have observed that every single human culture that has ever existed on planet Earth, both throughout history and in the present, has the idea that the inner essence of a person can become polluted or impure or defiled. And this could happen through something you eat or drink or something you do, an unclean act, something you believe, an unclean thought, something you say, unclean words, or someone with whom you're associated, unclean relationships. And if you just think with me for a moment, like most major kind of like religions have some version of this. So if you're Hindu, then bathing in the Ganges River is actually a place you go to ritualistically wash to make yourself clean. And of course, if Hinduism is not your faith, then you look at that and you're like, the Ganges River is actually super dirty, y'all. I don't know why that's a part of your practice, right? Or maybe you're um, Muslim. And so in the Islamic faith, there's the practice of wudu, W-U-D-U. It's this ritualistic washing of face, arms, head, and then feet sequentially in that order with no breaks in between because it makes you ritualistically pure. Or if you're Buddhist, there's kind of a, a different version of this where you actually believe that there's no, there's no such thing as being unclean on the outside. It all exists in your mind or kind of within you. And so you meditate for longer and longer periods of time because you're seeking to purify yourself within. And in fact, Buddhist monks will go so far as to wear intentionally dirty clothes on the outside so that they can demonstrate to those around them how enlightened they are, that they do not longer, they no longer care about how dirty or clean they are on the outside because of how clean they are on the inside. Or you might think about Navajo sweat emetic rites, um, where men or women, in order to be ritualistically clean, will have to jump over a burning fire and then sit in like a sort of a version of a sweat lodge heated with fire to make them sweat. So you're excreting your impurities out of your skin. Then you're sprinkled with ashes, fumigated with smoke, and sent back into society clean, ritualistically purified. 
Now, this is all going somewhere because in the United States, we have versions of this as well. You might go with me back through history and think about the Puritan era in the New England colonies where if a woman was convicted of adultery, she'd be required to wear a two-inch letter A pinned to the front of her clothes to publicly shame this person and mark them in society as unclean. And if you actually come with me through history, you get to something as recent as the 1980s and 1990s where you have the purity of evang- purity culture of evangelicalism. And some of us actually lived through this, right? Where purity pledges made by teenagers to their parents, to their youth pastors, to their churches, teen girls wearing purity rings, attending purity balls in white dresses escorted by their fathers as a public sign of their purity and through them, the purity of the family, right? Teenagers taught to not only abstain from sex, but also to abstain from dating, viewing dating itself as a slippery slope towards premarital sex. This idea was made popular by like the best kind of cultural artifact of the 80s and 90s purity culture, a book by Joshua Harris called I Cuss Dating Goodbye. Some of you read that. Some of you were required to read that. Some of you are recovering from reading that right now, right? And this was accelerated by something that was happening in society at the very same time, which was the AIDS epidemic, right? So you had something happening in the larger culture, and then you had something happening within the evangelical church, and these things like accelerated each other. And this led to, listen if you can, a kind of sexual prosperity gospel where teenagers were told that if they abstained from sex until marriage, then their future marriages would be marked by heightened sexual pleasures and spiritual fulfillment. In other words, God's going to give you sexual rewards for your purity. At this moment, it's starting to sound like a different religion, right? So this, as many of you know, bred this kind of two-headed dragon within people. Um, The two heads being one, pride, if abstinence was successful, or shame, if the teenager gave in to temptation. And both of these, pride and shame, do terrible damage to the human soul. So please hear me if you can. The point of all of this is not to just beat up on other cultures or on church culture. It's not to throw shade on Hinduism or at Buddhism or anybody, but it's simply to unfold the map of human society and lay it on the table so that we can all see together that every society has definitions of clean and unclean and stigmas to mark people as clean or unclean and rituals by which people may become clean again. This is not a Christian idea. This is a human idea. Are we on the same page together? Okay. And right now, some of you are thinking, I'm so glad that's all in the past, right? Like, we don't have to worry about that anymore. We've progressed past that kind of backwards, superstitious, judgmental religiosity. We're a society of enlightened and modern, thoughtful, nuanced people who would never stoop to treating other people or ourselves in such degrading ways, right? If only that were true, yeah? We, just like every other society in human history, have our own traditions about what makes a person pure or impure. We have stigmas we use to label people that are impure and our own rituals about how to become pure again. And one of the reasons why this conversation is so difficult for us is because we live in what you might call a post-Christian society, a society that has experienced the Christian faith as normative in the past, but then has, on the the whole, rejected it and moved on to something else. And so the secularism and the neo-paganism of our age is, you might say, vaccinated against the Christian faith because it believes it has tried it and found it to be toxic. And so we tend to believe today 
that the only thing we need to be purified from is the need to feel pure. That the only thing we need to be cleansed from is the need to feel clean. And so we live in a moment where our society is actively denying any reality to the clean versus unclean story. All things are clean, we say, except, there's always this hidden footnote, except people who believe there is such a thing as pure or impure, clean or unclean. Those people are the unclean ones, right? And so we have this kind of mysophobia, this germophobia towards anyone that believes there's such a thing as pure or impure, clean or unclean. But listen, if you can, claiming freedom from purity culture has not actually stopped us from practicing a purity culture. And so today, purity culture exists in many forms, and I just want to kind of call out one of them, okay? There's a lot of forms of this out there, but let's just pick one. The most powerful and I would say prominent form of purity culture alive and well today in 2023 in Western society would be a political form of purity culture. Politics has invaded every aspect of life, and it's brought with it two kind of warring purity cultures. There's a left version, there's a right version, and they are remarkably similar. Both feed off the same two-headed dragon of pride and shame. Both have their own set of stigmas to label the unclean and rituals by which you may become clean again in the tribe. And if you think we've been offensive so far in the sermon, it's about to get a whole lot worse, okay? So just kind of strap in, all right? So it goes something like this, right? Purity is untainted allegiance towards either the conservative vision or the progressive vision of a just and well-ordered society. These visions are totalizing. They not only include public policy, the traditional realm of government, but they also include secondary institutions like universities and primary schools, all the way down into the arts, with each side having its own music and film and food and clothing. And if you're a member of one of these tribes, and you make that grave error of expressing an opinion or sampling a cultural element from the other side, then your entire status as a person comes under scrutiny and you will be suspected of impurity. And unless you publicly perform an act to demonstrate your loyalty and your purity to the dogmas of the tribe, you will be convicted of impurity and marked with a stigma, a brand, a scarlet letter. That person's a liberal. That person's a conservative. Words that publicly mark you as impure and warn others not to associate with you. Otherwise, your impurity will rub off on them. And in order to become pure again, you really only have two options. You must either make public penance or you confess your impure thoughts and deeds and seek to be absolved by your tribe or, and this is a little bit easier, you can switch teams. In this case, you must enact the ceremonial ritual of public deconstruction of your former tribe, where you take to social media and you describe how you've been brainwashed or duped into believing the creed of the other side and how you finally are freed, liberated to acknowledge the truth. And your new tribe will welcome you with open arms, baptize you and declare that you are pure, right? Now, there, of course, y'all, of course, there are lots of other versions of purity culture out there. We're just naming one as an example. But it'd be worth pausing for a moment and just considering your own community, your own family, your friends, your coworkers, your relatives, your neighbors. Just think with me. What kind of beliefs or relationships or actions or thoughts or feelings would make you unclean or, um, or impure in their eyes? 
What would you have to do or say or believe to be cast out as impure? You know, it's interesting. The story of the Bible actually has a lot to say about this dynamic of pure or impure, clean versus unclean. The story of the Bible begins with creation. Human beings are created pure in their innocence. No impurity, no sense of being unclean, of not right. And, and the way we see that in, the, in Genesis chapters 1 and 2 is human beings are naked and unashamed. It's this perfect description of pure innocence. But then there's the fall into sin where impurity enters the world like a pollutant and it comes into the world through human sin. Human beings cover themselves to hide their nakedness, symbolically acting out what humans have continued to do throughout history, which is to find ways to cover up their sense of being impure. And God responds to impurity by, in kindness, distancing himself from impure humans so that his righteous purity does not harm them. And he creates from humanity a subset of people, the nation of Israel, who is called to be pure through living as God's chosen people. He gives them the law, which is charting for them a path towards purity, but also revealing to them their impurity and therefore their need, to, their need for God. And God's fullest answer to the problem of purity in humanity is to become flesh in the person of Jesus and to give a final answer to the problem of purity. And we're going to get to that more later in the sermon. The story of the Bible ends with all of the new humanity, which is the church and indeed the whole world, purified. Shame is banished. Pride becomes impossible. Health, wholeness, and shalom become the defining features of an eternity of purity. That's the story of the Bible. And into that story, we have our text right in the middle of it. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. What we're going to do with the remainder of our time is we're going to talk about this paradox of purity, the gospel paradox of purity. And we're going to ask three questions to kind of guide our time. Question number one is what does it mean to be pure? Just very simply, what does it mean in the imagination of the Bible to be pure? Question number two, why does this purity elude us? Why can't we grasp it? And then question number three, how? How can we become a people of purity? Okay, so what does it mean to be pure? Well, Jesus says, Jesus teaches, blessed are the pure of heart. So purity of what? Purity of heart. What is the heart for Jesus? What does Jesus mean when he says heart? Does he mean the organ that pumps blood? No, he means the seat of desire, the wellspring of all human affection. Jesus probably has Proverbs chapter 4, verses 23 in mind, which reads, above all else, guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. The heart is the epicenter of the human person. It's the core of your being. It's the the most you part of you. And so to be pure of heart is to have the affections of your soul focused in a singular direction. So that word purity, you could almost like substitute the word singular, like there's a singular focus to your love, to your desire. It's purity of heart is to have one chief love that supersedes all other loves, to have one big thing you want instead of lots of little things that kind of tug at your heart. Philosopher Soren Kierkegaard put it this way, purity of heart is to will one thing, just one thing. And Jesus is undoubtedly also thinking of Psalm 24 when he teaches this. And actually his disciples, who remember are first century Jews and probably would have had most of the Psalms memorized since they were kids, would pick up on the fact that Jesus is quoting from Psalm 24, which reads, who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, 
who does not lift up his soul to what is false, does not swear deceitfully, he will receive blessing from the Lord. So that phrase from Psalm 24, the one who does not lift up their soul to what is false, this is is a reference to idol worship and idol worship, idolatry in the imagination of the Bible is loving or desiring anything more than God. So in the context of Jesus' teaching, the one primary love is to be loved for God himself that God is to be the greatest object of our affections, the one we long for, the one we desire, the one we want the most above all else. So if we were to kind of creatively rephrase the beatitude, when Jesus says, blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God, here's a, a more like contemporary English version of that. Congratulations to those who desire God more than anything else in the world. They will be the ones who get God. In this way, you realize Jesus has actually said a version of this in lots of places throughout the gospel accounts. This is what Jesus is getting at when he says, ask and you will receive, seek and you will find, knock and the door will be opened to you. Jesus is saying, if God's really what you want, then God's really what you'll get. Now remember, this beatitude falls within the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus has called out from the crowd his disciples, his apprentices, to listen to his teaching. The entire Sermon on the Mount, including this first section, the Beatitudes, is all given in the context of living as an apprentice to Jesus. So here we're learning, in this particular Beatitude, that being an apprentice to Jesus has a lot to do with love. It has a lot to do with desire, a lot to do with what you want. Discipleship, which is, of course is another word for apprenticeship, is about curating the affections of your heart. Philosopher James K. Smith put it this way, Jesus is a teacher who doesn't just want to inform our intellect, but who forms our very loves. He's not content to simply deposit new ideas in your mind. He's after nothing less than your wants, your loves, your longings. His teaching doesn't just touch the calm, cool, collected space of reflection and contemplation in your brain, he is a teacher who invades the heated, passionate regions of the heart. Jesus is after the heart, not just the mind. It includes the mind, but it goes deeper. And you and I are actually used to thinking of this way, even if you don't know that you are. So we're used to this kind of logic in other realms of life. We're just not used to it when we think about faith. We're very used to this idea in the realm of romance, right? What is purity of heart when it comes to romance? Well, it means a singular love and desire and affection for that one particular person, right? Like we see this when somebody first has a crush. So like if you're, it's like go with me back to like middle school or high school, you have your first crush. When you have your first crush, everything in the world relates to that person, right? You're sitting in math class. The teacher's like drawing algebra on the chalkboard. And you're like, you know what algebra reminds me of? My crush, right? Like everything recenters on that person, yeah? We actually know this in the sports world as well. Some of you might not know that um, Kobe Bryant, you know, for all of his talent and ability, actually became the great player that he was because of his singularity of focus on the game putting in two hours of cardio, two hours of weightlifting, and two hours of skill training in shooting and dribbling every day in addition to practices and games. So like if you saw him play at like nine o'clock at night, he practiced for six hours that morning before the game. And there's just a singularity of focus there, right? It's the only thing for him. 
We're used to seeing this in business. Some of you might know the story of Tim Leatherman who created the Leatherman like pocket multi-tool, which like I know half of you have like in a glove compartment or a chest you know, drawer somewhere. But he spent three years in his garage working on prototypes by himself, trying again and again and again to get this device right. And then once he got it right, he spent three years just trying to sell it to somebody and get someone to buy it. So that's six years of his life just focused on one thing to the exclusion of everything else. Now, the logic of Jesus' beatitude is that the result of this purity of heart is that you will see God. And it's so interesting that Jesus pairs these two together, purity of heart and seeing God. This is not a coincidental pairing. There's a logic here. The thing you're focused on is likely to be the thing that is realized, that happens in the world. So the question we're left with is, do you want to see God? Now, a lot of people say they want to see God, right? Maybe you've said that before, but most people who say something along the lines of, I wish I could see God, what they mean is it's coming from a place of skepticism. If God would show himself, then I would believe, and then maybe I would love. Now, the logic of this beatitude, let's be careful, is not saying that you have to believe in Santa in order for Santa to be real, okay? That's not what Jesus is saying. Rather, the logic is those who love with a singular focus end up experiencing the thing that they're chasing after. The logic is more along the lines of what Jesus is getting at when he concludes many of his parables and his other teachings with things like, those who have ears, let them hear. Those who have eyes, let them see. So do you have the eyes to see God at work in your life. This depends on whether or not you truly have a desire for God. Sometimes putting things in the negative allows us to understand them better. So conversely, we might say, if you don't want to see God, you probably won't, right? Now, if that's what purity is, why does purity elude us? Well, later in the very same Gospel of Matthew, Jesus gives this teaching. He says, out of the mouth, so what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart. And this is what defiles a person. Out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. And that sounds normal to us. We're in our kind of like psychological therapeutic society. We're used to the idea that what's inside is like part of the real you. But Jesus is giving this teaching in a first century context to listeners who would have lived by a strict Jewish diet and who lived by strict social laws that had to do with the body and traditions and customs and rituals and relationships. And Jesus is not doing away with any of the law that applies to that. Remember, Jesus is the one who said not one iota of the law will pass away. But what Jesus is doing is he's taking his listeners underneath the law, plumbing the depths of human psychology and spirituality to reveal that the origins of impurity, the impurity that has plagued the human race, the impurity that causes every human culture and society to have ritualistic rituals to to make themselves pure, that the source of all of that is actually inside the human heart. It's, It's kind of like that line that has been so overplayed in thriller movies or horror movies that I know all of us have seen versions of where, like, let me just set the scene, okay? I know you've watched a version of this. There's a woman. She's alone at home. The power goes out. After the power goes out, there's a phone call. She picks up the phone. It's a deep, ominous voice on the other of the line that makes some sort of, like, thinly veiled threats. The woman hangs up. She calls the police and asks them to trace the call. There's a long pause. 
And then the police on the other end of the line says, I'm so sorry, ma'am. The phone call came from inside the house, right? And then of course, something terrible happens, right? The phone call is coming from inside the house. The sin that has corrupted the world has come from inside the human heart. The terrible contradiction of our age is that we have become people who actually idolize the desires of our heart as gods themselves, rather than our hearts desiring something outside of itself, a God. So do you see the difference here? It's subtle, but it makes all the difference in the world. It's the difference between being in love with the feeling of love rather than loving another human. It's the difference between being focused on being focused rather than focusing on work or something worth worth focusing on. Steve Jobs put it this way. In 2005, Steve Jobs, the founder of Apple, gave this commencement address to Stanford University graduates. And in his speech, he said famously, most importantly, have the courage to follow your heart and intuition. Somehow your heart and intuition already know what you truly want to become. Everything else is secondary. Now, his advice about your heart already knowing what is right and prioritizing your heart above all else has become a kind of religious folklore in Western culture. And so today, when we hear all of this spiritual language about the heart, we don't really push back. We kind of instinctively agree, right? Like, yes, absolutely, up top. It's all about the heart. I must live out of my heart, which means I must follow my heart. And the heart, after all, wants what it wants. So what I want is unquestionably good. And the worst thing you could say to somebody is that what they want is not good. Or the worst thing you could do to somebody is to prevent them from doing what they most want to do. And so rather than our hearts becoming the organ of desire focused outside of itself, directed towards God, the heart gets turned in on itself and the heart begins to desire itself above all else. It's a kind of self-idolatry. And this wreaks havoc on the human soul. It's like having an ingrown toenail, but inside of you. You're trying to satisfy your inner emptiness with more of yourself. And it's, this is the underlying source behind so much of the frustration and pain and embarrassment, the pride that you keep trying, trying to get rid of, but that you can't, the crippling shame in your life that you wish you could get rid of, but you can't. This is why, parents, you can't love your kids the way you know you should. You know you're supposed to be a better parent, but you're just not, right? This is why you can't be patient with your coworkers when they do things that make your work work so very difficult. This is why so many of you want to be free from pornography, but you just can't kick the habit. This is why you tell yourself at the beginning of every school year, this year is gonna be different, and then it's not, right? This is why you have these fantasies in your mind about finally getting even with everybody that has wronged you. This is why you desperately need your inner life to stay a secret. And if somebody scrolling through your internet browser history would be embarrassing for you, imagine if they could scroll through your mind and see very thoughts and stories and fantasies and images that live there. Like the very thought of that just makes most of us kind of cringe up on the inside, right? It makes us feel ashamed. The result of all of this is that we struggle to see God. We struggle to see God at work in our lives and in the world around us. Like there's a bigger problem here than just the problem of shame. 
Shame itself creates a bigger problem, which is you can't see God. You don't have the eyes to see. You don't have the ears to hear. Why? Because your heart is not pure. It's been turned inward on itself. And what's more, let's press in for just another minute here. Even if you had the option to see God, you really wouldn't want to. Not really. Not if you're honest. It'd be too embarrassing. This is why the prophet Isaiah, when he actually had a real, like legit vision of God, you know, what he, you know how he responded? You would think that a prophet would want to see God, right? If anybody would. And yet, when the prophet Isaiah finds himself in this vision of God, his response is, woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips. In other words, in the presence of God, the very first thing he felt was his own impurity. The first reaction of a sinful human being when faced with the opportunity to see God from Adam or Eve to Isaiah and you is to run away, to cover up because the real you is exposed and the real you is impure. And nothing makes, that, nothing makes you experience that more intensely than the presence of God. And so there's just a vital moment here. And if you miss it, you'll, you'll, you'll miss everything else. If you reach this point of self-knowledge, you may be at one of the most important moments in your life where you recognize the gap in purity between you and God. Jesus, the one who is pure in his own heart. Jesus, the one who the Bible describes as the spotless lamb of God, the one without sin, the one without blemish. In other words, the one who is pure. And when you begin to feel that gap, that purity gap, it's a vital moment for you. And the greatest mistake you could make in that moment is to run away to do anything to cover yourself and to hide, to avoid the embarrassing shame of being exposed for who you really are. But listen, if you can, here's how Jesus, the one who is pure, relates to those who are impure. Three ways. First, Jesus' love for you is pure. He's not just pure in himself, but the love and affection he has for you is pure. In other words, Jesus is not in love with the idea of love. Jesus loves you, and he loves you in your current state of impurity. He doesn't love the cleaned-up version of you. Most of us could get on board with the idea that God would love a different version of us, right? We're okay with that. Very difficult to wrap your mind around the reality that Jesus says he loves you right now, pre-cleaned up, pre-pure. Jesus loves you right now, knowing your thoughts, knowing the impure desires of your heart, and he still loves you. Second, Jesus reaches out and he touches the impure. A consistent theme all throughout the story of the life and ministry of Jesus is his contact with the impure. And for a first century Jewish rabbi, this was unheard of. You might think about the story of Jesus healing the man with leprosy. Jesus could have healed this man who, who had a, a, a physical skin disease, but which made him an outcast from society. He could have healed him any kind of way. He could have healed him with a word. He could have healed him with a snap of his fingers, you know, a la Thanos style. He could have like healed him. They could have done all kinds of things to heal this man. Instead, what does he do? He reaches out and he touches him. Why? To show him and to show everybody around, I don't think you're gross. I don't think you're icky. You're unclean and I'm gonna touch you anyway. 
You might think about the story of Jesus healing the woman who has the issue of blood. We're not entirely clear from the text, but it is likely that she had some sort of unresolved menstrual issue that had been going on for 12 years that would have made her ritualistically impure for all of society. And for her to touch a male rabbi, that's not something you do because now he's impure and now he can't go to God, right? And yet she reaches out and she touches him. And Jesus turns and everybody would expect him to rebuke her. And instead, he welcomes her. He affirms her. And he tells her that her faith has made her well. What is he saying to her? He's saying, you're not a burden. You're not gross. You're unclean, yes, but I'm actually here to make you clean. You might think about the story of Jesus letting the prostitute touch his feet, cry, weep tears onto his feet, and then dry those tears with her hair. And everybody around him was saying, you've got to stop her. She's making you unclean. Your own purity is being tainted with her impurity. And what does Jesus say to her? How does he treat her? He shows her, and he shows everybody else in the room publicly in that moment, you're not gross. You're not dirty. You can come. You can touch me. You know, there's stories all throughout the, the Gospels where Jesus eats and drinks with sinners. And, and so often people who read this today, especially Christians who read this today, just chronically misunderstand these, these verses because we end up thinking something along the lines of like, Jesus is so cool. He has unchristian friends, you know. Jesus isn't bothered by sin. He's like, chill. This is, look, the stories of Jesus eating and drinking with sinners are not stories of Jesus being chill, they're stories of Jesus being unafraid to bring the purity of his presence into the midst of impurity. Jesus touching uncleanness, nobody being too dirty for him. This is what Jesus is getting at when he says, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. Now, those are just two ways. Third, the way in which Jesus makes you clean is by becoming a sacrifice for your impurity. You see, Jesus doesn't just welcome impurity and say, it's all good. Jesus is actually something more of a, of a cleaner, the one who welcomes impurity in order to change, in order to make people clean. On the cross, Jesus, Jesus, the one who is pure, the lamb without blemish, takes your impurity on himself and offers a blood sacrifice that atones for sin. I don't wanna to get too gruesome here, but there is a profound, incredible, beautiful, if you can wrap your mind around it, logic to the cross where the purity of Jesus, which is not just outside ritualistic purity, but purity of the heart, the organ that pumps blood, where the blood of Jesus goes from out inside his body to where? Outside his body, right? It's a sacrifice. It's a blood sacrifice. And the purity that lives without Jesus, within Jesus moves to the outside to make others clean. In order to understand this, there's a lot of Old Testament here. One text in particular would be Leviticus 16, where the Israelite law describes the day of atonement, where the blood of a sacrificed animal is shed for the cleansing of the impurity of the whole people. Jesus is stepping into the role of the sacrificial animal. This is why the author of 1 John chapter 1 can say what he says when he writes, the blood of Jesus cleanses us from sin. It's the blood of Jesus that makes us clean. And so for those of us living today, even though we live in a very different kind of purity culture, it is still true that if you receive the sacrifice of Jesus by faith, then the blood of Jesus makes you clean today. And so do you want to be clean? Every human being comes hardwired with the need to feel clean. 
Will you acknowledge that need? Are you willing, countercultural as it may sound, to say, I actually need to be clean and I've been spending a lot of energy as an adult trying to show the world that I'm clean. It's why I keep virtue signaling online, right? I'm clean, everyone please recognize I'm clean. Psalm 51, King David writes, purge me, make me clean, wash me, I'll be whiter than snow. You know, baptism has been the purity entrance rite for the Christian faith since the beginning. And God in his kindness has given us a physical ritual because we are human, physical humans, and God loves the physical world. And so baptism not only symbolizes union with the pure heart of Jesus, but also a washing, a being made clean. And the purity that a Christian has through baptism, the purity that a Christian receives in baptism is, strange as it might sound, an alien purity, meaning it's not a native purity to themselves. The heart of Jesus comes into you from the outside via the Holy Spirit and enters your heart. And the Holy Spirit becomes, if you think about it this way, a kind of cleansing agent within you. And as the Holy Spirit comes to dwell within you, over time, as you learn to live in line with the Spirit of Jesus, the one who was the sacrifice for you, you begin to take up new practices of purity. Not practices to make yourself pure so that you can be acceptable to God. Not practices to make yourself pure so that you can prove to everybody else how pure you are. But practices that align with the purity that already dwells within you in the spirit of Christ. And so if we can just get very practical for a moment. If you have not been baptized or if your children have not been baptized then here's something very practical you can do in response to this. There's a baptism class tonight at seven o'clock at the parish house. Come, let's talk about it. Let's ask questions about baptism and let's talk about what it means to be made clean in Jesus. And then part two of that would be on Sunday, November 5th, there's gonna be a baptism Sunday. Come and get baptized. Come answer that nagging human need to be clean. God actually cares about that. And he's offered you a practice to alleviate it. Come and get baptized. Now, as we end by talking about a few more practices of purity, it's very important that we get crystal clear on this one point. The gospel does not create a purity culture within the church. The gospel creates a purifying culture within the church. And the difference is everything. Purity culture is your grandmother's parlor where you can't wear dirty shoes, right? Purifying culture is a laundromat. Are dirty clothes welcome at a laundromat? Of course they are. Is a laundromat a safe place for dirty clothes? Sort of, (laughs) right? Not in the long run, you know? Like it's a place to be made clean. Purity culture says healthy people only. Or, Conversely, a different form of kind of progressive purity culture says there's no such thing as being impure. Purifying culture is more like a hospital, right? It's not there for those who aren't sick, and it's not there to tell people who are sick that they're okay. It's there to offer healing for those who are ready to say, I need help, right? This is the purifying culture that the gospel creates within a church, and it makes all the difference in the world. Now, one of the practices of a gospel purifying culture would be confession. And you can do this in a worship service. We're going to do it together in just a few moments. Um, But we not only do this together on Sundays, we also do it alone every day of the week. 
or you can actually come and confess to a priest of the church one-on-one. And what happens in confession is you are naming out loud your impurity so that you can hear from another person, a minister of the gospel, the comfort that in Jesus you are in fact made clean. Another practice of purity in the kind of gospel purifying culture of the church would be practices that curate our senses, what you see, what you hear, what you touch, what you do. And any practice that leads your mind or body away from that singularity of focus and the love of God is a practice that must be resisted. So wisdom is really necessary here because this is going to be a little bit different for each one of us. In the words of John Calvin, you have to know thyself, right? So this, especially in our day and age, means very careful disciplines around internet, social media, streaming platforms. That old children's song, be careful little eyes what you see, be careful little ears what you hear, that becomes applicable to adults as well. The Eucharist, Holy Communion, the Lord's Supper, is another practice of the gospel purifying culture of the church. The table's not for perfect people, right? This, is not, this table is not like an orthodoxy test. Only those who are pure can come here. No. Neither is it a wide open table. Anybody can come, doesn't matter. No, this is a gospel table. Only those who are seeking to, for Jesus to make them pure are welcome at the table. And as you come to the table and receive the bread and the wine, which represents what? the body and blood of Jesus. You are taking those within yourself and the Holy Spirit of Jesus almost causes those to burn within you, symbolizing in that moment in an embodied practice, the way that Jesus comes into you and makes you clean. Lastly, the gospel purifying culture of the church looks like this in our relationship to each other. It looks like love for people who are exposed as sinners. Meaning in the life of a church family, a church community, other people's impurity is no longer shocking or gross. Your purity is not threatened by other people's impurity. You know why? Because it was never your purity to begin with, was it? Christ's purity cannot be corrupted. And so Christ's purity in you is incorruptible. Most people, Listen, we're almost done here. Most people will never believe in God's love for them until they experience the love of one of God's people. Most people will not believe that God does not condemn them for their impurity until a member of God's people refuses to condemn them for their impurity. And this is what we need from each other. This is how, this is how a church that is centered on gospel-purifying culture is so very different from a church that embodies kind of standard purity culture that exists everywhere. This must not be the kind of place where there's sort of like righteousness requirements to be a member here. How pure are you? Are you pure enough to be a member of Redeemer? Lord have mercy if that's a question we're asking, right? In the same way, if we begin to kind of redefine purity as something that sort of sort of says all things are are pure, all people are pure, then we offer people no hope to their built-in shame, their built-in sense of uncleanness. Rather, a church that offers a gospel-purifying culture on one hand says, welcome. On the other hand says, come and be clean. Come and be made clean by Jesus. A church with a gospel-purifying culture 
is, very, is, is, is a very unique thing, and it's not as common as it ought to be. Living, being a member of a church with a gospel-purifying culture can be a little confusing sometimes. Because on the one hand, you're going to hear this continual call to gospel formation, to become conformed to the image of Christ, to actually be pure. There's a call to be pure. And on the very other hand, you're going to know that the people around you are not pure. And as you become more and more self-aware, Lord willing, over time, you're going to realize in yourself, oh no, I'm not pure either. And these things are happening simultaneously. It's so much easier to do something else to do anything else. It's easier to have a religious purity culture. You must be this pure to get in the door, right? It's easier to have just kind of a wide open, let's redefine things, nobody is actually impure. It's easier, right? The gospel offers something that is much harder, but in the long run, much healthier. And in the long run, actually answers that deep human need that every single human being, every single homo sapien has inside of them, that need to be clean. God cares about that need. He has offered to alleviate that need, to answer that need in the gospel with the cross of Jesus and the blood of his son. Now let's end this way. What's the fruit of all of this? What does that gospel purifying culture produce in people? Ephesians chapter one, verse 18, that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened or, as another translation puts it, that the eyes of your heart may be opened. Eyes to what? Eyes to see what God is doing in your life in the world right now. When this gospel purifying culture begins to take shape, not only in individuals and also in a whole community, you know what happens? You start to see God at work. You have the eyes to see. All of a sudden, you see God's hand at work in your own life. You see God's hand at work in other people's lives. And you start to wonder, how did I not see this earlier? How did I not have the eyes to see? Friends, one day your heart is going to be fully and finally and completely purified. And on that day, you will see God. You will see God face to face. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, I pray that you would help us to receive and embrace and embody your gospel, that we might be made clean. And as we are made clean, that we might have the eyes to see you, both now and forever. In your name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening. To connect with our team or to learn more about our church, visit RedeemerRVA.org. We look forward to knowing you. Go in peace.